0: you operate does affect you the culture in which you you live it will affect the way that you view the world it's something that will happen without any exceptions we need to be aware of this we need to recognize that we are shaped and we are influenced by the place and the time in which we live and in which we are located And not only do we need to be aware of this, but we need to actively assess our culture and the way our heart is dealing with our culture and addressing our culture. Because in many ways, our souls are on the line. Now, there are many ways in which the culture will influence us which are completely natural and in reality, they are innocent. Language, jokes, even style, it's It's a matter of culture. It's a matter of our place and our time and our location and those sorts of things are not necessarily bad. And yet sometimes cultures do have influences on a people that are not innocent. Think about the 1960s. Think about our own place in culture and the way that uh, the hippie culture located some 40 miles away from us and Ash- Ashbury. Uh, it has influenced a nation's entire moral perspective. It began with a youth movement located in San Francisco, a group of youth uh, radically influenced by Marxist, Marxist ideas. Uh, they became determined to resist a society at large. And now in the wake of that movement, we now face moral confusion around every corner from our society's revolutionary ideas about gender and sexuality to our society's denial of morality in and of itself, our day and our age has been affected by our generational predecessors. Another example. The Columbine shooting has radically influenced our culture at large. Prior to that moment... The very idea of a mass shooting taking place on a school campus, it was unheard of. And yet now we're a couple decades removed. And it seems as though we cannot go a single semester without hearing about another mass shooting taking place on a school campus. Once that seed of destruction was sown into the mind of our culture... It began to take root and now we are living with its horrible effects. Our our culture is shaped by our past and we are a product of our culture in so many ways. And that means that we have the responsibility of evaluating the ways in which we view the world. We have the responsibility of evaluating how the culture around us has affected our hearts. And this means we need to be honest with ourselves and we need to be honest in the way that we evaluate the ways in which we interact with our culture. We need to see the ways in which our churches have been influenced by worldly tendencies. We need to see how our family structures and, and, and the ways in which we love each other as, as a family have been influenced by today's culture. You see, as we move into our passage tonight, we see that Israel's culture has has been radically influenced by the sinful tendencies of its surroundings and of its past. The ways of Canaan have infiltrated the camp of Israel. Not only that, but the ways of Abimelech, the, the king that we learned about last week. They continue to haunt Israel. It's as though there's this imprint of sinful tendencies that is placed upon the future generations of Israel. So, with all of that said, let's now look at our passage for this evening. We're going to be in chapters 10 through 12 of the book of Judges, and we're going to begin in in chapter 10. So let me just say, chapter 10, uh, if you turn there, It functions more so as a transitionary passage than as the meat of the passage. Chapters 10 through 12, they're they're all one story. But chapter 10 is really just setting the stage. There's not a ton of new information here. Multiple generations are brought up in this passage. Many of the sins that we read about here, uh, they're the sins that Israel's been dealing with for quite a while now. The cycle, the judge's cycle, continues Israel continues to indulge in sin. And after they uh, indulge in sin, they find themselves surrounded by enemies on every side. And then their, their situation leads them uh, to a place where they begin to call out to God for help. They don't like the fact that they're oppressed. And then God intervenes. That's the cycle that we see over and over again. And that cycle begins in verse 6. So we'll get there in a moment. But before we do, I just want to point out some of the some of the things we see in verses 1 through 5. Notice the very first verse. After Abimelech, then he goes on. There arose this individual and this individual. So remember, Abimelech was the individual we talked about last week. If you remember anything about what we talked about last week, I know it was like a while ago. Uh, but... Abimelech was the one who decided to take over Israel by force. He was the one who wasn't appointed to be a leader in Israel. Instead, he chose to be a leader. And what he did was he went to his 70 brothers and he killed them in a moment in order to take claim of the throne. And then uh, it came about at the very end of his life. Even though it, it's, it was almost as though Abimelech was the one oppressing Israel and they needed a judge to come in and, and deliver Israel from their own king. Um, but that never happened. Instead, what happens is Abimelech is about to literally burn uh, a, a city to the ground with a bunch of people in this city. And this, this woman gets up on a tower and she throws a stone and it hits Abimelech in the head and Abimelech dies on the spot. So we're coming out of that situation, a wicked dictator-like king who has decided to kill all of his brothers in order to take a position of authority in the, in the land. And what he does with his position of authority is he begins to murder people in the land. So in verses 1 through 5, now we see that we are on the back end of Abimelech. Abimelech has, has left the scene. And we see in verses 1 through 5, there are two different judges brought up here. No, uh, no real details are brought up about these men. All we really know is that each of them served as a judge for about 20 years. So here's what we know. We're now about 40 years past Abimelech. And uh, in verse 6, we see the cycle is beginning yet again. Verse 6, Israel is serving all of these false gods. And then the Lord's anger turns against Israel. Look at verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hand of the uh, Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. Again, this is no surprise. This is the way the Lord decided to to operate with the people of Israel during the time of the judges. They indulge in rebellion and he disciplines them. And the way he would often discipline them was by bringing enemies against them in order to oppress them. And this is where the plot line really begins. It really begins in verse 9. Because here we see the Ammonites, this Foreign nation is coming into Israel, they're crossing over the Jordan, and they're about to wage war a bit against uh, the Israelite nation. And at this point, we see this interesting back and forth between Israel and God. God is ready to give Israel over to the hands of the Ammonites, and yet Israel repents and seeks for God's help. And, and at first, God doesn't really want anything to do with their repentance until their repentance proves true and they put away all their false gods. And at that moment, God responds with grace. That's kind of the story of of verses 6 through 17. And in verse 18, we see that Israel is now looking for this leader, this God-appointed leader who's going to deliver them from the Ammonites, the Ammonites who are coming to destroy them. So they spend all of this time looking for a leader. And this brings us to Jephthah, Jephthah's story. And this is what we're going to read about uh, through verses or through chapters 11 and 12. But before we go there, I think there are a couple of important uh, lessons for us to learn from chapter 10. So what, what can we learn from chapter 10? First off, chapter 10 shows us that Abimelech's role as king had long effects, long-lasting effects on the people of Israel. We're being prepared for the fact that Abimelech will influence a future generation of Israelites. That's what chapter 10 is doing, us, doing for us. It's preparing the way for us to see that what Abimelech was doing, it's going to have a, a generational effect on the Israelites. In Jephthah's story, we see over and over again that Abimelech's sin lingers. Generations have come, generations have gone, and yet the sins of Abimelech are still affecting the nation. We're 40 years removed from him at this point, and yet there's still this shadow looming over the people, and we're going to discuss this more later tonight. Here's a second lesson that we can see from chapter 10. It's simply this. Israel's disobedience has grown more and more severe. It's it's grown steadily worse as we look at the history of the book of Judges. Look at verse 6 again. It says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreth and the gods of Syria, and the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So here you have this long list of all the ways in which Israel was engaged in idolatry. And as we move throughout the book, we, we keep seeing this. However, at this point, their idolatry has, has grown to new heights. Remember just a couple of weeks ago we heard about Gideon? And at that point we thought, oh wow, Israel is engaged in all sorts of idolatry. But at that point, what did we know? At that point we saw that Gideon uh, was delivering the people from their worship of Baal and the Ashereth. Well now that list of false gods in Israel is much longer than Baal and Ashereth. Now we have the Baals and the Ashereth and the, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. I think we see this sort of thing happen in our own lives as individuals often. We go back and forth between the ways of the Lord and and Christianity or and the world, right? We go back and forth between the ways of the world and the ways of the Lord. And we we often will result that 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 back and forth tendency that we have will often result in a sin cycle. We come out try to follow the Lord for a while and then we indulge in sin again and it seems as though it's worse this time than it was last time if you look at Romans 6 I think Romans 6 addresses this exact thing in in verse 19 of Romans 6 we see for just as you once presented your members as slaves to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification There's a spiraling effect that takes place when we begin to indulge headfirst into sin. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. That's Paul's point. That's really the point of the judges. One lie will lead to further lies in order to cover up the first lie. Sleeping around will turn into jealousy and bitterness and hatred. Sin does not stay stagnant. That's the point here. It grows. It festers. It spirals. Israel's history is proof positive of that exact point. We cannot forget, though, if you are in that sort of a situation where you feel as though sin is is just spiraling out of control in your life, you feel as though sin is not stagnant in your heart, you feel as though it is festering, as if it is growing, as if your craving for the things of this world are just growing. You cannot forget the fact that God is gracious. As we just sang, his mercy is more than, than the depths of our sin. He is all-knowing. He knows every single thought and intention of your heart. And yet, his mercy cannot be explored to, the, to its ends. Because the, the riches and, and the depths of his mercy... That's what we see again and again and again in the story of Israel. And we can expect the same thing for us in the here and in the now. So if you're in that place right now, I would encourage you to seek Christ because He is willing to forgive. I would encourage you to recognize that there is no depth of sin in your own heart that is too great for Christ to overcome. He purchased your forgiveness when he died on the cross and when he rose from the grave, he purchased your power so that you might overcome your sin. So look to Christ. He is gracious. He's willing to redeem. He's willing to restore. And he's proven that by the ways in which he has dealt with Israel throughout their history and the ways in which he has dealt with us through the person of Jesus. So without further ado, let's now look at Another example of God rescuing his people despite their immense sin during the time of the judges. We're going to start in verses 1-28 through 28 of chapter 11. Here we see this man named Jephthah is called to be a judge. Remember at this point, Israel's is looking for someone to rescue them from the Ammonites. They have this foreign nation coming to conquer them. And they find this man named Jephthah. And Jephthah, we'll will, will find out, he, he has a noteworthy backstory. right? He's, he's that guy who has a history that we cannot overlook. It's like, you know, the movie character who, who steps onto the scene and then you start to learn about that person's past in the movie and you go, oh wow, this, guy, this guy's like perfect for this job. This, this guy, though, he's not perfect for the job. Look at what his backstory is. Verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. Right off the bat, you're like, okay, perfect. We have someone who's going to be able to save Israel from this, this foreign nation. But look at the next, the next line. But he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons, And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Okay, so there are a couple of details that we cannot overlook here. First off, off, Jephthah is the son of a prostitute. Second, he's deranged from his brothers. So there's him and then there's all of his other brothers and they, they don't get along very well. And then third, he surrounds himself with these, these worthless fellows. Now I want you to think for a moment. Why is that significant? What about those three details that prove significant? Especially when you think about what we've learned previously in the book of Judges. Again, I'm going to make you think, All the way back to last week. Don't these details remind you of Abimelech? Who we learned about last week. Think about this. Abimelech. This evil man that we keep referencing. He was the son of a concubine. And because he was the son of a concubine. He didn't have a great relationship with his brothers. Right? He was estranged from the rest of his brothers. And third he was surrounded by worthless fellows when he went and killed all of his brothers in order to take the kingdom by force. Now, I think all of these details are placed here in order to raise a little bit of uh, our attention. Jephthah will prove... He's not the same exact character as Abimelech. However we have to recognize there are a lot of similarities here. And I think these similarities are pointed out in order to help us pause and to proceed with some suspicion. Just because he is a mighty man from Gilead doesn't mean he is a a righteous man. So from here on out, we keep reading, uh, we need to keep reading in order to see Israel approach Jephthah, and they they ask him to lead them as the Ammonites are coming in order to destroy them. And for a moment, Jephthah says, I I don't want this position. I don't want this position. And he tells them, why why should I partner with you after you have have removed me from my own family? You wanted nothing to do with me until you realized I'm a mighty warrior and I can deliver you from these uh, Ammonites. But then eventually he agrees he decides that, yes, I will lead Israel against uh, these, the, the people of Ammon. And he goes uh, to them before going to war. And he begins to reason with the king. Sends messengers to the king. And he tells the king, um, hey, listen, I, I don't want to go to war. Let's try to resolve this peaceably. So here, it seems as though Jephthah is a good guy. He's trying to resolve this peaceably. It seems as though he's acting with an element of godliness. He's using wisdom trying to solve this situation without having to go to war. But as we keep reading, uh, we we see more glimpses of what seems to be a, a godly character attribute in this judge. He goes to the king and, and the king responds and they start to interact a little bit. And the, honestly, the story kind of gets pretty technical. So I'm not going to just read it because it would be hard to follow. Instead, let me just try to summarize what's going on here. Uh. Here's what happens. The king to the Ammonites, he brings up this long historical situation that's gone on between the, the people of Ammon and the Israelites. And he brings up the Exodus. So basically when Israel left Egypt, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And at this point, that was 300 years ago. We're like 300 years removed from Israel leaving Egypt. But here's the point. While Israel was in the wilderness for those 40 years, the Ammonites went to war with Israel, and the Ammonites lost that battle, and so the Israelites inhabited a few of the Ammonite cities. So now you have 300 years later, the king of the Ammonites coming and saying, listen, I want those cities back. So, you know, Jephthah... He points out, he's like, you know, at the end of the day, this this isn't right for you to come to us and want to battle us for these cities. And here's Jephthah's reasoning. He says, you, 300 years ago, you fought us. You attacked us. It's not as though we came to you and attacked you guys. No, you t- attacked us. We conquered you when you attacked us, and we took those cities. And for 300 years, you haven't said anything about this and now all of a sudden you want to bring it back up and destroy us and go to war against us? I mean, in, in a way, it seems as though Jephthah is, is actually a godly man at this point. Remember, he's essentially like recounting all of Israel's history. He's trying to act peaceably. He's trying to solve this without going to war. But the Ammonites won't listen to Jephthah. They decide, no, we're going to war. So at this point, is when everything seems to turn south for Jephthah. We're in chapter 11, verses 29 to 40. Again, the Ammonites, they want to go to war. Jephthah decides he will lead the Israelites into battle. And then he goes and he does this. Look at verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hands, then... Whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Jephthah decides to make a vow to God. And it might seem like a good idea. It might seem like it's pretty innocent. I mean, what's the problem with making a vow to God? Sometimes, I just want to point out, sometimes you can make a vow to God and it's actually a good thing. In fact, you have vows in scripture that are viewed as good things where someone makes a vow to God. However, this is not the type of vow that we ought to make. There are multiple problems with this this specific vow, as we'll see. First off, Jephthah is essentially bargaining with God here. Do this for me and then I'll do this for you. Deliver me from the Ammonites. I'll offer you a sacrifice. That is not the way God works. If that's your understanding of the way that God works, then I have to inform you, you're off. You're missing the way God operates with his people. We cannot approach God this way. God isn't into making bargains with us. God God doesn't come to you and say, Listen, I'll help you pass your class as long as you serve on the worship team. That, that's not the way God works. That, that kind of stuff, it has all sorts of problems with it. And so I would just encourage you, if those are the sorts of prayers that you pray to God, God, do this for me and I'll serve you, you have things backwards. Because when you have that sort of a prayer, you're assuming that you actually have something that's like legitimately valuable for God. You, you have this assumption that God needs you. God needs you to perform. God needs you to accomplish this thing for Him. And therefore, he, he needs to barter. Okay, I have resources. You have resources. We need to have an exchange here. Simply point put, God does not actually need anything from you. That's the truth. God is not dependent on you for anything. Here's another issue with Jephthah's bargaining. In reality, Jephthah is essentially saying, I will be obedient by offering a sacrifice if you do this for me. Here's the flip side of the equation, though. What if God doesn't deliver Jephthah? Is Jephthah going to act in obedience? You see... We cannot allow our obedience to only take place when God does for us what we want him to do for us. Sometimes God will make us feel uncomfortable. Sometimes he might not do the things that we want him to do for us. And yet that does not negate our responsibility for being obedient to him. You know, he might desire for Israel to lose this battle for all we know. He might actually uh, allow Israel to to lose this battle in order to teach them something. Maybe maybe God doesn't want you to pass the class. Maybe he wants to teach you something by failing the class that you didn't study for. (laughs) That shouldn't prohibit you from singing on the worship team. God, you didn't do this for me, therefore I'm not going to do this thing for you. We cannot approach God with this sort of attitude, this sort of spirit of bargaining. That's not the way God works. That's not the sort of obedience that God looks for within us. No, that's false worship. In a lot of ways, that's actually idolatry. If you're just looking to God as some sort of genie in order to accomplish the things that you want him to do for you. Now, we've already seen a couple of issues with Jephthah's vow, but I haven't even gotten to like, The major issue with Jephthah's vow. So let me actually go to the worst thing about this vow now. And um, we need to look back at verses 30 and 31. Let me just read it one more time. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. It's that word whatever. That word whatever. If you have a Bible in front of you, especially in the ESV, I know it's in the ESV, you'll notice there's a little footnote after the word whatever. And if you follow that footnote down to the bottom of the page and you see what it says, it actually says whoever. That's kind of interesting, right? This word can be translated as whoever, not just whatever. So, which is it? Is he just saying whatever comes out of my house I will offer to you as a sacrifice? Or is it more specific? Is he saying whoever? I mean, I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we heard him say whoever, then we're thinking like a person. And that gets a little weird, right? So wait a second, you're going to offer God a person as a sacrifice if he allows you to win this war? So let me give you a little hint as to what I think is going on here. Notice that Jephthah literally says, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing or person that comes out from the door of my house in order to greet me. I don't know about you, but um, I've never met anyone. I've never saw anyone, seen anyone. I've never seen this even like on the Discovery Channel. I've never seen anyone like keep goats in their home or cows in their home. And typically when I think of like a sacrifice, I'm thinking like a goat or a cow. And he's saying this, this thing is going to come out of my house to greet me. Another thing, I've never seen a cow greet its owner before. I've never seen a goat do that. You know, maybe a dog, but like dogs in this day and age, they weren't pets. They were actually viewed as being pretty mean. They were like guard animals and that's it. So, let's keep reading. So, in verse 32, we see Jephthah wins the battle. So, Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Look at verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, it wasn't cow, it wasn't a sheep, it wasn't goat, It was his daughter that came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. So now what? What's Jephthah going to do? Is he going to sacrifice his daughter? Is he going to keep this vow that he made? What's he going to do? Verse 35. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter... You have brought me very low. You have become a cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Like, you just heard that right. And then his daughter asks, Father, you need to keep your word. Basically, her, she says, you need to keep your word. Only let me go into the wilderness for two months and wander around my with my friends and mourn. And then in verse 39. And at the end of the two months. She returned to her father. Who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Like what in the world? Like what in the world? What is going on here? At first you think this is like a godly man. The way he's like interacting with the Ammonites. He's trying to. To settle this matter with peace, he's, he knows Israel's history even. And yet, now he's sacrificing his daughter to God, as if that's a good thing. Let me just say first off that I do think that Jephthah meant whoever comes out of my house. I'm going to offer that person as a burnt offering. I don't think he had in mind that an animal was going to come out. I really do think he thought contextually, as you read the story, I think contextually he thought a person is going to come out and I'm going to sacrifice that person to you, Lord. And he thought it was a good, good thing. And then he does it. You know, it's not as though when his daughter came out, he was like, okay, I need an animal. You know, it's not as though he just overlooked his daughter. No, he saw his daughter and he said, well, this is unfortunate. I was hoping it, hoping it was someone else. So he offers a human sacrifice. He offers his own daughter as a human sacrifice. And there's a lot we can say here. And so let's, um, let's say quite a bit. First off, should Jephthah have gone through with the vow? In the first, Like, should he have actually gone through with this vow? I mean, he feels trapped. He sees his daughter and he's conflicted, obviously, but he, he feels as though he's in a catch-22. Like, I made this vow to God. I can't go back on my word now. So which is greater? Make a vow to God and break it or go through with the child sacrifice. <laughs> which do you do? You know, sometimes people will say that Jephthah, he was in a catch-22. He made a vow to God, and he then his daughter came out. They're just like, Ugh, "What do you, what do you do it?" And they feel as though there's actually a conflict here. The truth is, though, is that Jephthah never should have made this vow in the first place, and he sh- certainly should not have kept this vow. It seems that after all, he didn't know it, uh, the law very well. He might have known Israel's history with the Ammonites, but he did not know the law, the Old Testament law, which clearly clearly, over and over again, forbids child sacrifice, prohibits, uh, pro- prohibits any sort of like human sacrifice, murder, <laughs> uh, for that matter. You know, here's the thing. If you make a vow to sin, God is not, not going to hold you accountable for that because you kept your vow to sin. Again, this is like sin leading to more sin. God is totally fine with you breaking a stupid vow. That's sinful, just so you know. I had a roommate in college who like felt totally convicted because he made a vow to God that he was going to marry this girl, and then they broke up, and he was like, I can't date any. I'm like, dude, that's... And he would look at Jephthah's story. I'm like, dude, okay, first off, Jephthah's not a good example. Let's start there. Um, but here's another lesson that we can learn here. Jephthah has allowed his culture to influence The way he views God. This is where we really need to camp. The Canaanites offered child sacrifices. Those who worshipped Baal offered human sacrifices. Those who who worshipped the gods of the Philistines offered human sacrifices. You see... Jephthah's entire perspective of God has been shaped by his culture. Without a shadow of a doubt, it's clear, Jephthah's theology is, is way off. It's out in left field at this point. Just because someone has a knowledge of God and a care for God does not mean that that person has an adequate understanding of God. Okay? There are many leaders in the church, there are many pastors who will talk about how much they love God, they'll talk about how much they care for Christ, but many of them have views that are completely unhinged from Scripture. And just because you care about God does not justify your false doctrine. Just because you say you care about Jesus does not justify false views from the scriptures. Many people in the church, they've allowed the world to dictate the way they understand God. And in essence, they've allowed Canaan into their churches, and Canaan has begun to influence the way they read their Bible, the way they understand who God is, the way they understand theology. So, let me give you some examples of the ways in which the world can influence the church. I mean, we might not be committing human sacrifices, but even subtle worldly influences can prove damaging to the church. You know, it, it's not even debatable that in many ways we have allowed the world to influence the way that, that the church conducts our worship services. Think about this. The way we view prayer in a worship service, the way we view uh, uh, music in a worship service, so many churches are influenced drastically by the ways of the world. We, we walk into a service and it feels as though the, the music taking place is more of a concert than any sort of corporate singing to the Lord. Churches will, will sing songs that sound as though they belong on pop radio and they'll sing them in their worship services. Our worship pastor here, David Morgan, he, he'll he often say this, and I, I always think it's really funny. He's like, you know, there's so many songs out there that are deemed like Christian, and they don't even like use a name for God. He's like, there are a lot of names for God. At least use one of them, you know, and... Obviously, that's a very low standard for the type of song we should sing. Just because something says, like, God's name doesn't mean we should sing it. But it's like this joke, like, if a song isn't even willing to say God's name or one of the many names for God, then, yeah, that's probably not a song we should sing. We also tend to eliminate long prayers from our services because we think they're boring. They don't hold people's attention. People are going to think we're weird if we're just up here praying for a long time. I think the world has influenced our our mindsets and we've begun to think that everything we do as a church ought to be entertaining. Long prayers don't entertain, then... Okay, cut them. That song, you know, that song where we sing about blood and death, that's not really entertaining. Cut it. The church has been influenced by the world's practices of, of business. We often think that a successful church is marked merely by numbers. Uh, uh, How many services does the church have? How many campuses does the church have? How many people flood through the front doors of that church on a given Sunday? How many people are online watching the service, live stream? And we just think, hey, tons of people, tons of money coming into this church. It must be a healthy church. That's a worldly view of success. We all have the tendency of the We allow the culture to influence the way we understand God, the way we understand the church, the way we understand Christianity. We cannot, though, allow Canaan to affect the way we run our churches, the way we understand theology, the way we look to God. Okay. Here's the thing, though. When we get to chapter 12, we'll see the story doesn't get much better. It actually... Kind of gets worse um, Here we see that Jephthah uh, is not the only one marked by worldliness in Israel. Worldliness has not only uh, found its place in the leader of israel it's actually found throughout the tribes of Israel. Look at verse 12 or chapter 12, verse one. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, in other words, they were going to war they're going to battle right now, and they crossed. To Ziphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. Okay, so here we see Ephraim isn't going to war against the Ammonites. They're like, I'm going to war against Jephthah. Why? Like that seems like an odd. Pretty extreme response to what just happened. Jephthah just delivered Israel. And now one of the tribes of Israel is coming to Jephthah and saying, listen, we're going to burn you alive. You didn't ask us to come with you. Like, what in the world is going on here? You know, it's worth noting, too, uh, that Abimelech, if you remember the story of Abimelech, what did he do? He burned a bunch of people alive. Where did he do that? In Ephraim. So here we see like this lasting influence of a previous leader upon the people of this tribe. They're clearly influenced by Like, Hey, he, he burned a bunch of people alive. Why don't we do it to this guy? And so they're going to burn him alive out of jealousy and spite. So how does Jephthah respond? This is where things get kind of weird. Jephthah just says, hey, listen, I asked you to help and you didn't help me. What are you talking about? Why are you here to burn me alive? I actually asked you to come help me, and you didn't want to come. And now you're saying that uh, you're going to burn me alive because I didn't ask you to come with you? What are you even talking about? Well, we keep reading, and uh, clearly Ephraim is just jealous of, of uh, Jephthah's fame and the fact that he was the one responsible for delivering uh, the Ammonites, or... or delivering the Israelites from the Ammonites. And so now we see that civil war has broken out in Israel. You have half of the tribe, uh, Gilead, and the other half of the tribe, those in the, the plains of Ephraim, essentially all part of Ephraim. They're just going to war. There's a civil war at place, uh, taking place. And what we see here is that 40,000 men from Ephraim end up dying by the sword. Jephthah kills them. I mean, what seemed to have started pretty well has just spiraled out of control. We had this man who seemed to be a good leader, seemed to be a decent negotiator. He ends up delivering Israel. And then all of a sudden, everything just spirals out of control. He's sacrificing his daughter. There's a civil war. He's mur- or killing, uh, murdering, killing 40,000 people from his own tribe all in the matter of seemingly days, right? It just went from a, a good point to just down the drain in what seems to have been a couple of days. Jephthah's understanding of God was shaped by Canaan. Ephraim's rage imitated what they knew from their own experience with Abimelech. You see, our cultures influence us. Abimelech influenced the people of Ephraim. The Canaanites Their worship influenced Jephthah. We need to recognize that we have a responsibility of monitoring what is happening within our own hearts and within our own churches to make sure that the world is not influencing us, not influencing the way that we understand God, not influencing the way that we do church, not influencing the way we understand the people of God. With all of these different aspects of life, the scriptures and the gospel should be shaping our perspective, not the Canaanites, not the ways of this world. You see, instead of assessing the success of a church with some sort of business metric, how many people, how, many, how much cash flow does that church have? Instead, we need to, to assess that success based on the gospel. Is the gospel being preached clearly? Is Christ being proclaimed? Are God's people being loved and, and led into a, a healthy form of discipleship? That's what marks a church's success. Not how many people, not how much funds are pouring into the church. Instead of evaluating the quality of worship music based on how many people are entertained by the music, we need to ask, is this music helping the people of God engage with God? Is Christ being exalted in this music? Is the word of God central to the songs that we sing? When it comes to our pursuit of godliness, we cannot allow the world's standards of morality to dictate the way we live our lives. No, we need to look at the gospel. We need to look at the word of God and say, Christ, you need to dictate the way I live my life. I'm not going to listen to the messaging of this world to, to figure out how I'm supposed to live we need to allow Christ to dictate our moral standards. We need to allow Christ to, to dictate to us what healthy singing looks like in the church. We need Christ to dictate to us what a healthy church looks like. And we could think of a million more examples of the ways in which culture will attempt to hijack or manipulate our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of the word of God. But our Mindset must be constantly shaped by God and who he is. Our understanding of scripture. That, that should be shaping the way we view the world. Not, not the world viewing the way we view itself. You see, we have this responsibility of resisting the temptation of Jephthah who allowed the ways of the world to shape the way he understood and worshipped God Let's pray God give us...